Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. I'm very excited about the guests that we have today. We're going to be talking about big, big companies and about some of the big lessons learned from those companies, but also about entrepreneurship. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Shishir Merotra. Welcome to the show today. Thank you, Alejandro. So originally you were born in Buffalo. How was life growing up in Buffalo? <laughs> we only spent about, my, my parents were both grad students. And so they moved from India. I was born soon after that. And we only spent about nine months in Buffalo. So I have, I have very little memories of, of Buffalo. We moved to Virginia pretty soon after that. Got it. Yeah. And, and definitely yeah. a beautiful place, Virginia, to, to grow up. It is. Yeah. We, my father is, uh, is an academic. Uh, actually, both my parents are academics. And so I grew up in university life, uh, campus of University of Virginia, and then, uh, and then Purdue University up in, uh, up in Indiana. And we came back to, uh, uh, he got a position at NASA in, uh, in uh, this little town called Yorktown in Southeast Virginia. Uh, that's where most of my childhood was. That's amazing. So how, how did you start to develop this love for, let's say, computer and mathematics? Oh, interesting. So my, my, uh, well, both my parents are computer scientists. And so we always had computers around the house. And, uh, you know, I had one of the, one of the few kids that had a sun workstation at home, which was pretty unheard of at the time. Uh, and I ended up building things for, for fun. My mom was running a business. And so I would end up building things for her as well. And uh, although interestingly, I, I didn't really think that was like many kids. I thought whatever my parents did, that's exactly what I don't want to do. And so I was pretty convinced <laughs> I went through basically every other career possible and thought about being, uh, you know, there's a phase where I was sure I was going to be a lawyer, for sure I was going to be a doctor, for sure I was going to be, you know, I, I, my first job was to be a, uh, a soccer referee. Um, uh, and so I had a, a, a future in, in athletics at some point. Um, the, um, and then when I went to college, I was deciding on my major. And for some reason at that moment, I I'd sort of, you know, this computer thing was actually sounding more interesting to me than I, than I thought. And so I, I called my dad and I said, um, hey, I'm thinking about uh, declaring to major in computer science. And, uh, and interestingly, he was very upset about it. And he said, no, no, you can't do that. And, he's, and in fact, he was stronger about it. He said, if you do that, I'm not paying for college. And I said, <laughs> I said really, why? 
And and he said he had a simple rule. He said, I'm paying a lot of money. I went to MIT. Uh, uh, it's a pretty expensive school. And he said, I'm paying a lot of money for you to go, go to college. And I'm not having you learn some uh, some topic uh, where all the topics are new. And it's basically he thought of computer science as a vocational profession. And so he said, you have to major in a subject where the books are at least 50 years old. And so he made me major in math. Uh, and I ended up getting both degrees. I did a math and computer science degree. But from his perspective, I'm a math major who happened to do computer science. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And and so <clears throat> basically, we're talking about 96, 96, 2000, 2000 is when you graduate. And right. why? I mean, you all of a sudden got, I mean, here you are, you know, your your parents, they're in academia. And, you know, like it seems like probably the, the easier path, you know, is going to work for someone else. But then you go out and, and you launch your, your, your first company. Is that right? Yeah. So that's right. So my, my, my family is super academic and, and my father's professor, my grandfather, aunt, grandmother, all, all of them were, were professors. And so I joined, you know, what was the obvious thing to do? I joined the grad school at MIT and was working towards go get your master's, go get your PhD. And I had this friend, um, uh, this guy named David Radicek, and David had uh, an idea for uh, what at first he described to me as a good research thesis. And so we went and got, convinced a couple of professors to sponsor us and, and started working on this idea. Um, but he actually had a completely different thing in mind. He said, why don't we, why don't we apply to this business, uh, business model competition? So MIT had a competition that at the time was called the 50 K entrepreneurship competition. It's now called the hundred K because it's 20 years of inflation. Um, but the, uh, uh, so we ended up submitting this idea that was really a pretty academic, uh, geeky idea. I mean, the, this was right after, if you remember the company Akamai had just come out, um, founded by a bunch of MIT uh, professors and grad students. And so we had a research idea that was based on a similar idea of how to do distributed computing um, with uh, with no coordination. So you could, you could distribute data across a, a network without having to have a, a central coordinator. Uh, at the time, this was the, the, the industry people all, all called this the peer-to-peer -peer generation. Uh, and so that, that was where the, the original idea focused. And we submitted it to this business plan competition, um, even though we were mostly working on it as a grad thesis. And that turned out to be more interesting than we thought. We ended up being runners-up in the competition, got a, got a lot of different attention. And it kind of, you know, before we knew it, we were entrepreneurs. Uh, sort of not, not, not really directly planned. Wow. Were your parents happy about that? Uh, initially, no, uh, they, they were, uh, and, and I actually had to, MIT has an interesting program where you can, you technically go on sabbatical for, I think, I think they give you seven years or 10 years or something like that. So for, for a long time, I had to tell my parents that I'm still in grad school. I'm just on sabbatical, even though I had really no intention of going back. Um, but, uh, the, you know, the, the company was fairly interesting. It, it, it happened that the, the person, uh, who led the first financing, um, was a, uh, a pretty well-known venture capitalist, this guy, Vinod Kosla. And, uh, and so that kind of helped with my parents as well. Uh, just, you know, it's just a prominent person that's fun, uh, funding the company. And this was the time Vinod was at Kleiner? Vinod was at Kleiner. Vinod had an interesting model at the time. He basically, he funded one major company a year and uh, Centrata was his 2000 investment. And, you know, at the time Vinod had this, had this idea he'd been working on for a large utility computing platform, which in today's speak is probably closest to what Amazon has built with uh, with uh, Amazon Web Services, or you can look at Microsoft and Azure and, and the, the Google Cloud. Um, 
But uh, he saw our business plan, and that's what sparked him, is I had a line somewhere in the opening paragraph that said, we're entering this generation of utility computing where anybody can buy the computing resources they need in a similar way to they buy, how they buy water and electricity. And we think the start of that is the set of algorithms we've been working on for how to distribute data and, and processing across networks of machines. Uh, and so that, that got him interested in the, in, in the project. Um, and actually, there's a lot of that. This is back in 2000. There's a number of companies that uh, turned out it's interesting. Whenever you start a company, you think it's you think you have this unique idea. And then all of a sudden, all these people emerge that are working on on similar things. Uh, and so there was a bunch of companies in the uh, in that same space. Probably the most famous was is a company called uh, LoudCloud that was funded by Mar- uh, sorry founded by Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz that eventually became this company called Opsware. And so they were one of our one of our top competitors. Um, all of us were way ahead of our time. I mean, this was a time when virtual um, we were all trying to build utility computing, but without virtual machines. And so there was you couldn't actually move. Uh, computing across machines yet. And so this was, I think, a classic case of great idea, terrible timing. Uh, all those companies, um, uh, you know, either went back bankrupt or had mediocre exits. Uh, but I got to learn a lot in the process. Got it. So, so then let me ask you this. What was the, what was the outcome? What ended up being the outcome of this, of this business? Oh, yeah. So Centrata, basically, so it's an interesting story. So our first client for Centrata was this company, uh, Quest Communications, which was uh, a, a big telco, and this is back when AT and T had been broken up into lots of telcos, and then you know since then it's been all brought back back, back together. Uh, but Quest covered uh, the sort of southwest region, was based out of Denver, and uh, our first deal. Uh, so they were running a big um, hosting operation where they where they rented out data center, data center space, racks, computers, storage, so on to to people, and we built the software to manage that. And the first deal with them. It's actually a, a super fun story of how we got the deal, which we can get to later if you like. Uh, but it was a it was a twelve million dollar deal, which for a company of you know ten fifteen people was an enormous amount of money. And one of the things that uh, I didn't realize at the time was you know we we're super proud of it and managed to raise another round of financing based on it and 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 so on. Uh, but one of the things I didn't realize is that when your first customer pays you um, you know ten twelve million dollars, they basically own you. And, and so I got an apartment in Denver. I was going down there two days a week um, and uh, attending staff meetings at Quest and, and, and so on. And basically, the company became a consulting company. Every deal we did was a multi-million dollar deal. Um, and they bought our software, but they were really buying uh, a set of services from us, uh, which at the time didn't seem like a terrible thing because we were bringing in a lot of revenue. But from a company growth perspective, uh, it meant that you scaled like a consulting business. And from a investment and valuation perspective, it meant you were you were valued like a consulting business. Um, and that, and, and uh, so basically the company ended up getting sold to another consulting business that then got sold to another consulting business. And in some part in that process, I lost track. Um, but that, that was the that was because the outcome. How much how much money was raised in total for this business before the uh, transaction? Something like 40 million dollars. 40 million. I mean, that's that's yeah. a lot of money for building a consulting business. It is. Yeah. I mean, I think this was this was an era where this is you have to remember this is before SaaS existed. So your your ability to build software and to deploy it to people 
uh, at scale didn't didn't really happen, right? So you would, you would build a piece of software, and then you'd go, you'd like not only have to deploy it, you like we'd install servers, right? You'd, you'd you'd show up, and and from hardware to software to consulting to migration to all of, all of that was done by one company. So even if you had a pretty interesting piece of software, the the deployment of that was uh, was pretty intense, and I think. I think once uh, you know Salesforce started to make that model clearer, uh, I think we've seen a very different generation of, of enterprise software businesses. Got it. Because now what we understand is that you go and invest for a wheel that is turning on its own rather than what it used to be before, maybe back then, where you're investing for, for more people to turn the wheel faster. That's right. And you're, you're also the... The idea, and I mean, and this is you know, as we get to talking about Coda, and so on, I can I can talk more about my observations on this market. But the you know, at the time, what you were actually buying from these big enterprise software companies wasn't a package piece of software. I mean, if you go look at how people deployed SAP or Oracle or so on, it, it was every single deployment was completely different. Um, and when SaaS came along, it meant that really I'm I'm adopting one model that works across different companies. Uh, and that part of the value proposition was that it wasn't significantly customized just to you. Um, and I, in fact, I think we're 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 tilting back now uh, with with uh, with the whole market moving back towards um, people customizing software and built, like, what we call the maker generation. Um, but at the time, this was we were sort of in the opposite world, and, and people had these big consulting businesses. And, and, and we'll talk about Cora in a bit, but before we get there, I mean, there's um, two stages in your professional career that, that obviously were, were big ones and that, you know, have probably shaped the, the professional that you are today or the entrepreneur that you are today. And, and you had the chance to, to work at two of the most respected companies uh, when it comes to tech in, in the world. And, and one is Microsoft and then the other one is Google. But your first one was Microsoft. And, and, and how yeah. was that switch from you from from here you are an entrepreneur, all of a sudden you got to go and work for someone else. So it's probably worth pointing out the order wasn't obvious. The the uh, so I was so Centrata um, was gradually become a consulting company. I wasn't enjoying it as much, and so I had decided to move on. And uh, the board was super supportive. I ended up staying on the board for years afterwards. And the the uh, and the, my primary investors, uh, you know, Client Perkins, Vinod, and John, and so on, were also very supportive. And uh, and they said, okay, fine. If you're not going to work on Centrata, why don't you work on something else in the Kleiner portfolio? And they had this. Uh, I said, okay, so where, where would you like me to to go? And they said, well, we have this this really interesting small company um, called Google. Um, why don't you go talk to them? And uh, and so I went over to talk to Google. And actually, if, if things had played out a little bit differently, I probably would have joined Google first. And I don't know if I ever would have ended up at Microsoft. Um, and and I, I'm a pretty active investor now. And so I, I think I make reasonable bets. But at the time, I'll say I was uh, I underestimated Google's potential and I ended up turning them down uh, in that process. It was 2000, 2002, right? Yeah, late 2001, wow. early 2002. And so... Um, uh, so we're talking about Google at probably fifty cents a share versus the over a thousand, like twelve hundred bucks a share of today. No? I don't know in terms of share price. Let's say my wife, my wife remembers well the, the amount of money I have to give it up in that process. But yeah, I mean, in terms of company okay. stage, Google was this was before AdWords. This was yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, there, were, there were three product managers of the company. Their names were Susan Salar and Marissa, um, and Jonathan wanted Jonathan, who was running product at the time, wanted me to come be the fourth, and the. Um, uh, so it would have been a great journey, and obviously ended up back at Google years later. Um, uh, and I, I, I think uh, everything in life happens for good reason, and I ended up with a lot of learning in that experience. 
Um, but the, uh, the reason I ended up at Microsoft was I had this old boss who um, had been an intern at Microsoft while I was in college. And I had this old boss who was working on this project that I was, I was just really excited about. And he called me up and he said, hey, we're going to do this thing. We are going to uh, turn Office into a platform for business applications. And it was interesting because Centrata had basically become a big business application. That's what we were building. This is this enterprise application for managing data centers. And I was just watching how this industry was evolving. And it seemed like everywhere I turned, people were building up these business applications. But what they were really competing with was documents and spreadsheets. And that was really the, the heart of what, you know, we walked into Quest and this big $12 million deal. And what we migrated them off of was, you know, a big giant spreadsheet. And so for me, this was like really obvious opportunities. If, if, if Microsoft could go turn Office into a, a platform for business applications, then this would, this would be uh, quite a huge opportunity. And, and so I got pitched this as, uh, um, and I ended up joining this team. Actually, interestingly, my skip level boss on this project was a guy named Satya Nadella, who now runs Microsoft, of course, and but this is uh, you know much earlier in Satya's career as well. Um, and uh, I showed up at Microsoft to go work on on turning Office into a business platform. Uh, now, l- little did I know, in one of my lessons of of running, you know, you, you said I've gotten to work on big companies and small companies. Actually, I describe it as I've gotten to work on both big companies, small companies, and small companies within big companies. And this was a this was a small company within a big company. And the project got killed within nine months, which is a you know one of my early learnings of of how of how uh, how things work at some of these larger places. Uh, but I ended up switching to a couple different teams at Microsoft. I worked on uh, after moving on from Office, I worked on Windows, and then I worked on SQL Server, uh, and ended up having a, a great career out of it. So, were you able to um, to work on some of those uh, projects directly with Satya Nadella? Yeah. So that first project we worked very closely, um, although that one ended up not not working. The next one I worked on, actually, that was a fun story too. I ended up working on a project called WinFS, um, which the I'm not sure how much your listeners will be familiar with this project, but uh, uh, the the uh, it was one of the hot projects at Microsoft. This was back in 2004, 2003, 2004, and it was meant to be the new backbone for a new version of of Windows. Um, I think when uh, uh, Bill Bill Gates and, and Steve Ballmer get interviewed and get asked about some of their um, some of their biggest mistakes or regrets or so on, they almost always end up talking about this project. So it was it was a, it was a pretty fantastic failure. Um, but we we uh, we ended up building a new file system for Windows that then that didn't end up shipping, uh, but had this interesting side effect of bringing together an amazing group of people. And uh, I like to describe it sort of similarly to, um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a number of great projects in history, which although the project didn't succeed, it ended up bringing together people that, that, uh, that were very high caliber and, and end up staying together. So actually a lot of my, my co-founder here at, uh, at uh, Coda, we went to school together, but then worked together on on 1FS. My head of engineering here worked on 1FS and so on. Um, so I ended up having a great run at that. And then I worked on SQL Server, which is just the database business, um, which was, and, you know, SQL Server is one of the, the I think, un, um, underappreciated Microsoft successes. I mean, this was an industry, Microsoft had no business in this industry. And Microsoft was a client computing company, built Windows and Office, and there's a company called Oracle that had already run away with the database market. It was sort of no place for Microsoft. And this group of people turned this uh, into a really a huge business for Microsoft and became the, the heart of what is now the, the, uh, the Azure strategy for, for Microsoft. Um, and I ended up running uh, uh, what, what is there called program management. Most other companies call product management uh, for that database business. 
So what a what a great run at, at Microsoft. I mean, we're talking about going to your seventh year. You were for like six years and and a little bit longer than that. But but why why did you decide to go to Google to like the biggest competitor? <laughs> well, so to be clear, Google wasn't the biggest competitor at the time. I mean, that that was. Uh, at the time, in fact, Microsoft was very focused on Oracle, Linux, so on. This Google was probably heavily underestimated up in Redmond. Um, the um, the the story was I, I, I it started with a personal story. So my my uh, it, it, while all of the rest of my career was happening uh, on the personal side, I ended up marrying uh, my college sweetheart Anjali, and she's a physician. So I convinced her to move out to Seattle and do her. Um, residency and then i convinced her to stay and do her fellowship there and basically she was running out of school to go to and so she said uh uh all right uh you need to pick a place to live and uh her statement was i can be a doctor anywhere but you have to pick one place because i don't want to move around and i said well if i'm going to be in the tech industry and i have to pick one place to live i'm going to pick silicon valley and so that sort of started the the process and i i i started coming down um you know i was coming down basically every week i'd come down for a day and just meet people. And I was, I was pretty sure, I mean, when I had gone to Microsoft, um, you know, all of my advisors had, had basically told me, go to Microsoft, you started this company, go learn some of the basics of, uh, of, of leadership, of product management, of, of business, of, um, organizations and so on, and then come back and start another company. And so I was pretty sure I was going to start a company again. And, uh, so I was coming down to, to the Valley. I had my list of ideas, uh, and I was pitching different co-founders and, and venture capitalists and, and so on. And then, uh, you know, uh, the, the guy who had tried to hire me at Google six years earlier, Jonathan Rosenberg, was was very persistent. And so Jonathan had called me and said, hey, I, I, hear, you're, I hear you're thinking about leaving Microsoft. Why don't you come join Google? And my first reaction was, well, no, that's not really what I have in mind. I've, you know, I've been working at this big company for a while. Um, there's a lot of amazing things I've learned, but I'm sort of ready to go back to, to starting something. And Jonathan gave me what turned out to be, I, I was not, it didn't seem very believable at the time, but it was a pretty true pitch was he said, no, 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 Google is not really that big. You know, this Google in 2007 was, it Google is, is basically where Microsoft was like in the mid nineties. Like we have so much more room to grow. Um, and there's so many more businesses to be built and, and so on. You should come and talk to us. And that, that actually did turn out to be, turn out to be quite true. Um, but so I showed up and, uh, and met a bunch of the different people at Google and, um, I spent time with all the, the different uh, uh, great leaders that had been accumulated there. Um, and uh, initially, I still felt like it wasn't the right place to go. And then, um, you know, something kind of interesting happened. I ended up in, in Jonathan's office at the end of the day, this after, you know, Sergey and Larry and so on had pitched me all the different things they were working on. And I'd heard about, you know, Chrome was not out yet and Android wasn't out yet. And But I was sort of seeing some of where they were headed with these things. And, um, and Jonathan made this statement to me at the end of the day. He said, so what do you think? And I said, well, you know, it's kind of interesting, but it still feels like a big company to me. Um, I think I'm going to go work on one of my one of my startup ideas. And he said, no, no, you're not getting it. This this company, uh, we, we got all these new things coming. But even in our core business, we're not we're nowhere near where we could be. And we have all these uh, all these advertisers. But, you know, all the ad money still gets spent on on television advertisements. And nobody even watches television advertisements. And, you know, it, interestingly enough, that statement um, you know, for me, I uh, I didn't know anything about advertising. I never bought or sold an ad in my life at the time. And so for me, that was completely surprising. It's like, what do you mean? All the ad money goes to television? Why is that? And 
And uh, I ended up getting on a plane um, after this interview. And I, I have this weird habit that I often do some of my best thinking on planes. Actually, there, there was a period in my career where I would intentionally take, uh, you know, accept speaking engagements and so on and, and, and places far away just so I would get quiet plane time. And then the, the <laughs> I love it. The airplane industry added Wi-Fi to planes and completely ruined it. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, so anyways, I get on this plane, I take out the sheet of paper, and this was, this was um, let's see, February of 2018, I'm oh, sorry, 2008, and um, uh, this was a week or two after the Super Bowl, and this was uh, the Patriots had just lost to the Giants in one of the most epic Super Bowl matches ever, and, uh, and I, I had uh, hosted the Super Bowl party, and I was sitting there and thinking about this, and I said, "Hey, I don't, I don't understand." He said that all the money gets spent on television ads, and nobody even watches television ads. But like, we just hosted a Super Bowl party, and all these people showed up. And whenever, uh, um, you know, while the game was on, people were talking, and then when the ads came on, everybody stayed quiet and watched the ads. And they sometimes made me rewind and watch the ads again. And so there's something different about the Super Bowl. And so I wrote this. I ended up taking the sheet of paper and I ended up writing down. Uh, the title of it was "What Would It Take to Make Television Feel Like the Super Bowl Every Day." And, um, and I didn't, uh, you know, as I got home, it was late. My wife was already asleep. Um, so I'd kind of put it away. I woke up the next morning, I wrote Jonathan, I said, Hey, you know, you said something in the middle of your conversation. You probably don't remember, but it kind of stuck with me. I ended up writing something about that, about what I think I would do if I were focused on, on improving advertising. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to send it to you. And if you're interested, you know, I'm sure you already thought about it, but if you're interested, feel free to go work on this. I don't think I'm coming to Google, but you know, maybe you can help fix television. And, um, and so he happened to be up and he called me back right away. And he said, Oh, actually these ideas. And the, the heart of the idea was, uh, was what ended up becoming, um, in, in the advertising space is known as true view. So that's the primary ad format that drives YouTube. It's the skippable ad format. And the, the core idea was really simple. It was, why don't you make it so that ads are skippable and only charge advertisers when the ad isn't skipped. That way you get a you get a signal on whether the ad is any good, uh, and it kind of works just like AdWords. In my mind, it was like so obvious for Google to go do this because it's so, so in keeping with the Google ethos on advertising. And so anyways, I sent it to Jonathan. Jonathan said, actually, you may be surprised to hear this, but no, we don't, actually don't have anybody working on this. Um, why don't you come and do it? You can think about like a startup, and that way you can achieve your entrepreneurial objectives, and you can go work on this fun new idea and learn a new market and, and so on. And so that's how Jonathan convinced me to join Google. That's amazing. And then, you know, the, the rest of, is history, you know, because you, you were one of the leaders as well driving uh, YouTube. Is that right? Yeah. So, so we ended up, so this long story of how that ended up happening, but basically uh, I, I, I started working on a project in, in what was then called interactive television. Um, and that, that ended up becoming Google TV and then Chromecast. And that's now the Google home team. But pretty soon afterwards, we sort of reorganized things a bit. And uh, I was working for uh, a woman named Susan Wojcicki, um, who actually now uh, runs YouTube, which is a, or an interesting circle. And um, Eric uh, Schmidt was running Google at the time and asked Susan, hey, I need someone um, to apply their skills to help uh, help figure out how to turn this this acquisition, this company YouTube, into a into a productive business. And and so Susan turned to me and said, Hey, um, you know, when you joined, you you had written this paper, and where you're, the current path you're on is going to be a very long way to go execute on this 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 new ad strategy. Why don't you go try it at YouTube? Um, and uh, and so well, she encouraged me to go over there, and that turned into uh, you know, I spent about six years working on YouTube. We spent the first couple years uh, uh, working primarily on the business side, and it's you know, YouTube. It's probably 
just in terms of context uh, for your for your listeners, it's easy to forget this, but in 2008, YouTube was a laughing stock of the industry. I mean, it was a, um, you know, I, I still remember my first my first meeting with our CFO. So Patrick Pichette was the the new CFO for Google. I showed up and um, and Patrick said, uh, you know, I, I don't understand this business at all. Uh, and he had three charts in front of him. And the first chart showed how much money we were losing per year. And it was, uh, say it was hundreds of millions of dollars. There's a lot of money we were losing per year. I mean, they just bought the company for $1.6 billion and we were still losing hundreds of millions of dollars per year. Um, uh, the second chart showed how much money um, we lost per view. And we were, every single time somebody loaded YouTube and watched a video, we were losing money. Um, and even that number was big. And the third chart showed how views were growing. It's like the only chart that looked positive was views were growing like a freaking rocket ship. And so he looked at this and said, this is like the worst business on the planet. Like you're losing a bunch of money, you lose money on every single view and views are growing like crazy. Like this is never going to end. Um, why don't we sell this? And so his question in this, uh, this review was, who else was an interested buyer in YouTube? Can we, can we, uh, uh, or do you think they'd still be interested? And, and, uh, you know, I, I think it was sort of half joking and ended up, it ended up, uh, obviously not, not happening. Um, uh, but it was kind of a way to put us on notice that, Hey, you gotta, you gotta turn this thing into a real business. And, you know, every, everyone around us thought that YouTube was, was Google's first, uh, first bad mistake, right? Every acquisition, everything Google had touched up till, up till then had been complete gold. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe this one, this maybe the first one where it's not going to work. And so, um, so we spent the first two years primarily working on that. What, how do we turn this into a real business and, and, uh, ended up rethinking how, how we thought about traffic, how we thought about, uh, partnerships, how we thought about, uh, advertising and so on. And then, um, uh, about 2010, that sort of turned and it became more obvious that YouTube actually is a pretty good business. And uh, then we ended up spending the next four years on really turning it into uh, growing use, uh, users and turning it into more of the what I thought the the, the real promise of, of YouTube was. Um, and that was to turn it into the next generation of, of, uh, of video. Really cool. Really cool. So then so then at what point does the idea of, of Coda really come to mind? Because you leave Google uh, in May 2014 and, and in June, you're already up and running with Coda. Yeah. So, what was, what was the um, incubation process of Coda? Yeah, sure. Uh, and I mean, YouTube is an interesting story because YouTube was, um, you know, I had this, I had this old uh, uh, boss who used to to describe to me that every business goes through three phases. And first, you're a joke, and nobody believes in you. Then you're a threat, and everybody's scared of you. And then you're obvious, and everybody just assumes that what you're going to do is going to work. And um, uh, and then you can kind of only do wrong. And I like to describe my, my YouTube journey was I, I got to go through but sort of all three phases. And when I got to YouTube, we were a complete joke and nobody really believed in us and, and thought we were, you know, uh, a big mistake. Uh, and then we became a threat. And there's this, there's a really interesting period where, um, you know, everything we tried, everybody else out there was trying to mimic or, or was coming after it and so on. And basically, when we get to 2012, 2013, 2014, we switched into into obvious mode, and I think it's the mode that that YouTube operates in now, where you know it's it's just taken for granted that YouTube is a, a great property and a big business and is going to keep growing and scaling. Um, and the tone of the the types of people that I think uh, are appropriate to work on businesses at that stage are very different, and it's just a, it's a different type of fun. And so, because what happens at that stage, you know, I uh, 
you know, at the, at the time when I was in the joke and threat phase, you know, we could do one small thing. We were doing so much wrong. If we got one thing right, uh, you know, everybody wanted to talk about it. And it's, it's like every YouTube, YouTube success story uh, was, was talked about everywhere. Uh, and, and, you know, you can probably see it now that, you know, unfortunately that most of the scrutiny and, and so on, 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 on YouTube tends to be poking at things that are, that are not going well. And so that, that was starting to change. The tone of the business was changing um, uh, it was changing also inside of Google. And so towards the end of 2013, I got my itch to go, to go do something different. I went and uh, talked to my boss, uh, this guy named Salar. And I said, um, uh, uh, you know, we were running YouTube in this kind of interesting way where, um, it was basically myself and a guy named Robert Kinsel had kind of divided up a responsible responsibility for day-to-day ownership of YouTube. I was running the product engineering and user experience sides and Robert ran, uh, sales content and marketing. Um, and I went to Solar and I said, uh, "Hey, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to think about doing something different. I've been at this for uh, for a while. Um, you know, let's you know think about restructuring this. Maybe we could find a different different way to do this." Uh, and that ended up leading to um, uh, Solar was also ready to step aside. And um, so, in that process, Larry asked Susan to come over and take over uh, and and to restructure YouTube. And uh, so as part of that process, I said, that sounds great. I'm going to I'm going to go work on something else. And at the time, I, I, I thought I would end up doing something else at Google. And so I actually spent probably four or five months um, as sort of an advisor to YouTube, helping out various Google teams and working on what I thought was going to end up being another uh, another, you know, next act at Google. Um, and then I had this friend, this guy, Alex and I, who ended up being my co-founder at Coda and Alex, uh, Alex and I have a lot of history together. He and I went to college together. He's actually one of the early engineers on, on Centrata. Uh, he was only a freshman in college, but we, we ended up convincing him to, to drop out of college, to come, come, uh, help us out. And, uh, he thankfully ended up going back and getting his degree. So his, his mom still talks to me. Um, but the, the, uh, <laughs> Alex said, uh, Alex and I have had a career where he, he, he worked with me on Microsoft and then, and then, um, uh, he started a company, ended up getting bought by Google, um, briefly worked on YouTube as well. And so anyways, he was, he had left and was starting a company and thankfully that company wasn't going particularly well. And so he was, uh, he had asked me for some advice and said, oh, I'm going to start another thing. What should I work on? And I had some free time on my hands. Um, and so I was helping him brainstorm ideas. And the uh, I had a list of uh, of ideas that I thought were uh, that I thought were interesting. And I had told him, look, I don't think I'm going to start a company. Uh, you know, I'm 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 running a large division. I've gotten gotten quite used to uh, dealing with problems at a different scale. Um, you know, but I'm happy to help. I'm happy to invest. I'm happy to advise. I'm happy to you know help you construct a team, whatever it might be. If you, especially if you do any of the ideas on this list. And so so originally I was not intending to 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 start this company. Um, and basically one day, uh, one of us wrote on the board, this, this statement that, you know, what if, what if the next, um, uh, what if applications could be completely different and what if the next, uh, uh, document platform allowed you to build docs that were as as powerful as apps. And when that statement got written and got framed, it just stuck with me. And I, I always like to tell people that, you know, I, I, have, I have people come to me all the time and say, I want to start uh, I want to start a company. And I always ask them two questions. I say, do you have an idea that you can't imagine not working on? And do you have a um, a person or a teammate that you can't imagine not working with? 
And, you know, usually I ask them that as a way to discourage them. I think a lot of people start companies for the wrong reasons. And, um, and usually they'll, one of the, one of those two answers is no. Okay. They'll say, well, I have this person I want to work with. And I'll say, okay, what do you want to work on? And they say, well, I don't know yet. And I say, well, that's probably not so good. And although they'll say the other way around, I've got this idea. And I say, okay, who do you, who do you, who have you convinced to work with you? And he said, well, I haven't managed to convince even one person yet. And I say, well, that's probably not good either. Um, but I found myself in this interesting situation where, uh, I didn't think starting a company was the right thing for me. So I, I had a really high bar for doing it, but I had this idea that I just couldn't get out of my head and I could picture this product and I knew it should exist and, and so on. And I had this person that I could work with, uh, who was like a perfect foil for me. Um, and so I kind of ended up in this situation where, uh, I'd been giving this advice to so many people that when you answer these two questions, yes, you have to start a company that I found myself saying like, Oh, I, I probably should do this. And so that, that's how, that's how Coda got started. So then I think I think thinking about Coda then and 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 really getting this this thing out to the world. I mean you're you're like this this really like heavy on on I would say like good in product. I mean product kind of guy as well. No. So so how were you thinking about product market fit and and what needed to happen for you guys to understand that you had hit the nerve? Like what did it take to hit that nerve? Yeah, it's a good question. The, the and I think I I maybe just take a step back from that. I think that most great businesses start with a simple thesis. And you know, I I think you should just go back through through history. And sometimes the thesis maybe maybe you know far from obvious. And I think like for YouTube, the thesis was um, that uh, online video is going to do to cable what cable did to broadcast. And the um, you know if you go back, the first time I made that statement. It was like, I, I maybe just give you a couple other examples. Like Gmail, the thesis was you should never have to delete email. Uh, Chrome, the thesis was that the web can be 10 times as fast as people expect. And every one of these businesses had this like one nugget of an idea that kind of propelled the rest of the, of the product. So for YouTube, interestingly, we made the statement. I think the first time I made that statement was I gave this talk in 2009. I was at this conference in New York um, and I was only a few months into the job, but I was asked to give a talk about how to think about YouTube. And at the time, people thought about YouTube as... Um, YouTube was mostly compared as a social network. So we were thought of as our primary competitors were MySpace and, and Flickr, um, which may, may sound crazy now. And so I gave the speech and I said, you know, online video is going to do to cable, cable did to broadcast. And we're going to go from three channels to 300 channels to 3 million channels. And uh, now when I make that statement, people think that's, oh, that's kind of obvious. That's exactly what YouTube has become. Uh, but at the time, that was really far from obvious. I mean, it was, it, people looked at me like I was nuts. Quite, you, you should be talking about MySpace and Flickr. Why are you talking about ESPN and Disney? Um, that, that doesn't seem like the right, the right place to be. Um, so, so similarly for, for Coda, we needed, a, we needed to make sure, that in my mind, I was only interested in starting a business if I could identify the thesis very crisply. And, and if I could picture it, if I could picture why that was, why that was going to happen. Um, and, uh, and so Coda, Coda really comes out of two primary observations of the world. One is that we think the world runs on uh, docs, not apps, that everywhere we look, every, every team we, we look at, every household, every person, we'll ask them what they use to run their lives and they'll name They'll name XYZ pieces of uh, software and here's this inventory tracker and here's this to-do list thing and here's this task management thing or, or CRM tool or so on. But if you actually watch what they do all day, they're in documents and spreadsheets. Um, and that th this, this observation 
you could probably tell from my, my previous background, something had been with me for 20 years. And this was one of the main things I learned out of Centrata was that, you know, for every enterprise application out there, there are, uh, you know, every person running an enterprise application, there are literally 99 people doing the same thing with a spreadsheet. Um, and so this is kind of observation number one of Coda. And then observation number two of Coda is that the those tools, those documents, spreadsheets, and so on, haven't fundamentally changed in 40 years. That if you were to go back we had this running joke at the company that if if Austin Powers were to pop out of his freezing chamber uh, and uh, show up in the world today, he wouldn't know what clothes to wear or what music to listen to, but he would absolutely know uh, how to work a document, a spreadsheet, and a presentation because none of the metaphors have changed in in almost in almost forty years. And and so from from our perspective, um, you know, you put those two things together, it's it's a little bit crazy, right? We've got this. This, this set of tools, documents, spreadsheets, presentations that we're using to run our lives, to run our teams, to run our companies that we spend all day in front of. And the metaphors in these products haven't changed in 40 years. I mean, every other product around us is completely different. Um, and so when we started Coda, this was the, the heart of the thesis is that we think that uh, anybody should be able to make a doc as powerful as an app. And to, to put it back in the same terminology, right, that, that, you know, if you think about what I, the, the YouTube statement is online video is going to do to cable, cable to the broadcast. In that process, what YouTube did was it created a completely different generation of, of, of makers, right? It, 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 it allowed a set of people out there who previously would have, you know, to be a to be a video maker in the 1980s and 1990s, early 2000s, you had to, you know, you had to live in LA, you had to, you know, find a way to work your way up at a studio. That that's like these, this was the path, right? And YouTube comes out and embraced that anybody can go and create video. I think that same phenomenon is happening in every industry, and we're seeing, you know, the what Etsy is doing to products is allowing anybody to turn their crafts into a business, or even in like the gaming industry, you get. Uh, when people play things like Fortnite, Minecraft, what they're learning is that I can shape the world around me. And so, so the, the, the sort of the heart of the thesis of Dakota is uh, that, that I call it the maker generations, that, that makers are going to reshape software uh, in much the same way that YouTube shaped, uh, reshaped video. So that, that was really the, the, the impetus. Um, so now as you start developing the product, the, that, you keep that in mind. And you, you sort of say, all right, uh, the, the, the real test here is it, you know, we, we use this phrase a lot for Coda, that you can build a doc as powerful as an app, that the real test here is on both sides of that. Can we build something that feels as familiar as familiar as a doc and yet allows you to build something as powerful as an app? And, and to be honest, it took us it took us probably three years before I felt like we had an MVP that was anywhere close to meet, meeting that promise. Right. Wow. So then so then what ended up being like, how did you guys end up like, let's say, monetizing this or how are you thinking about monetization? Yeah, so the, the product's currently free. I mean, this is this is part of my my philosophy for for building products like these is you know pick your top risk. What what is the real risk of this of this thesis? I mean, this idea that the, these these set of makers uh, can turn their docs into apps. You know, what take that top risk and make sure you put that first. And so, in my mind, we spent uh, we did something pretty non traditional. I, I ran the company for the first three years in stealth mode. So we didn't tell anybody what we were working on. And a lot of that was because I wanted the company to have complete, complete focus on, on the product that don't get distracted by, uh, you know, by press or by investors or, or so on. Let's just focus in on what does it take to make a, a new type of document where people can build docs as powerful as apps. Um, and so we focused uh, entirely on that. And now, uh, so we, we launched our first beta 
uh, about a year ago, um, year and a couple months ago. And then we finally launched Coda 1.0, uh, just two months ago. So, so we're, we're, we're pretty early in that process. And, uh, at this point it seems obvious that, that, um, that we're onto something. We now have, you know, tens of thousands of users all over the world, 5,000 different businesses, um, uh, run on Coda. The, the, uh, so there's lots of different, um, uh, evidence now that we're, we're at that point, but, you know, shouldn't not to be taken for granted how much work went into, uh, and how much failure along the way to, to have people, uh, try every part of the product and give us feedback and so on to get there. Uh, and now we're work, in the next phase. We'll work on how we turn that from a product into a, into a business. Thankfully in this market, I don't think that's actually the, the biggest risk. I think that, um, we're a product that our users tell us is very valuable to them. And so they're quite willing to pay for, um, but our first bar is, you know, can you, can you, uh, build something for people that's as familiar as a document and as powerful as an application. Got it. Got it. So, so one of the things that, that I saw that I was really impressed is even though you guys are kind of like early in, 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 in really getting this out there and, and, and scaling and growing, I think that you guys have really done incredibly well on the, on the financing side, because how, how much capital have you guys raised today? We raised about $60 million. Sixty million, and from unbelievable people. I mean, at the end of the day, is is who you are surrounded by. I mean, we're talking about NEA, Greylock, you know, with Reed Hoffman himself, uh, General Catalyst, Cosla Ventures, Kleiner Perkins. How did you get these people involved this year? Yeah, I get asked about this a lot, and I'm I'm happy to tell my story. I'm not totally sure how repeatable it is <laughs> so in terms of well, advice. Let's, 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 let's hear it because this is literally like I want to create a movie, and you go to Hollywood, and you get like the Steven Spielbergs of the world just 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 being there with you. You know, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a few elements of this. I mean, I think I think probably the first observation is that. Uh, you know, like any other relationship, relationships are built over long periods of time. And just about everybody who invests in the company is someone who I've I've worked with or helped or co-invested with or or so on over the years. And so I think, you know, one one certainly big piece of it is uh, you know, when you come around and you're ready to start your company and and um and you have a new idea, you know, having some background with the investor is is super helpful. Um and I think that's probably the first piece of it. Uh, you know, if I think about my my own investment criteria, the you know if, when when people ask me for investment, I, I generally ask three questions. I say, uh, you know, is this a team that doesn't know how not to succeed um, uh, in a space where winning matters? And the third criteria is, do they have a secret that that is a good enough secret to start with? And that, and you know, inevitably, the secret they start with isn't the one that's going to matter. Uh, eventually, but it's, is it good enough to get, is it good enough to get started? And so, I mean, I think in our case, you know, as we were starting the company, uh, you know, it helped that I had, uh, some, some relationships already in place with people, uh, and just about everybody I had done, done something with in the, in the past. Um, uh, I think the team had, the early team had a lot of credibility I mean, it had started businesses, had built products and in, in unexpected places, things from scratch, scaling things that were already at scale. Um, and, uh, and the, the space where winning matters, you know, I think this is a space where there's little doubt that this is a, it's a big opportunity, right? If you can really shape how people think about documents or applications. And it's sort of, we, we're at the intersection of the two. Um, 
you know, that's a massive space and uh, massive opportunity, ignoring even just the business potential, just the human potential of how many how many people you can touch and how much impact you can have. The, the sort of idea of reframing it around this maker generation, around around this idea that, you know, software is going through a, a revival. I mean, kind of same same statement, you know, when I when I talked about for YouTube that online video is going to do the cable, cable did a broadcast, like it didn't seem at all obvious to people, but now it's like really obvious we're in that generation. Same thing here in software is like now when I talk about the maker generation software and, and you know, people have applied lots of different labels to it. I, I think for the most part, people nod along with me and say, okay, that, that does seem obvious. But when we were starting, it wasn't, wasn't quite obvious. But I think we did a good, good job telling that story. And then the third piece of it is like a good secret to start with. I mean, I, th- I think the heart of that was we could just picture the product. And the, 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 actually, interestingly, the original pitch deck for, for Coda, the, the company started with the name Krypton, by the way. That was our, that was our code name. Um, I have a I have a, a a weird superhero obsession, so it was framed around super, <laughs> Superman. Um, the the um, uh, you know the original pitch was um, was basically a product spec. I mean, it, it, it was sixty nine slides of mocks. Uh, this is what I pictured this product could feel like, and so I think. You know, the investors at that stage mostly looked at it and said, okay, here's this credible person who seems to have, uh, you know, have, have managed to create reasonable outcomes in kind of unlikely spaces. Um, uh, he's got a pretty convincing story about why this market is already big and why it's going to be much, much larger. And he seems to be able to picture a way to get through it that, that, that is interesting. And I think you put those things together and the company was quite fundable. So, uh, you know, ended up, ended up being able to raise money somewhat, somewhat easily for the company. Got it. So then, so then I want to ask you this then. So uh, typically when when I have guests on the show, you know, I, I ask them a very similar question. Mm-hmm. And and I guess in this case, the question that I have for you is, you know, you you you've come a you've come a you've come across or you've come around, you know, the um you know, building products and and building companies. I mean, it's 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 a it's a really interesting, you know, journey and you know, I'm sure that you've learned a lot, but if I had to ask you the question of what would you do if you had the chance to speak with your younger self, what would you tell your younger self if you had the chance to give you one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that piece of advice be and why? Shishir. Uh, that's a very deep question. Uh, one piece of advice, uh, two come to mind. One I've already talked about, so I'll sort of skip past that. But the, the, one I would gently tell people is be crisp on your thesis. What is, what is the, what is your unique observation of the world that, uh, that, that when reduced to its sort of purest form is an, an inevitability that you can bet on. But if I put that one aside, um, and if I had to answer that question super honestly, I think that most entrepreneurs, um, I do a speaker series here as well, where I host, I have, I have people come by and talk to the company. And I'll, I often ask a question like that as well. And I'd say most entrepreneurs, if they're being truly honest about uh, what it takes to be successful and where their mistakes generally tend to happen, it tends not to be strategy, fundraising, products, so on. It tends to be people. And if I have, uh, if I had to give advice to myself or to, to to new entrepreneurs and so on, it's you know that focus on people is 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 really important, and it, it manifests itself in all sorts of ways. I mean, it, it means uh, investing in relationships that you may not think matter yet. I mean, it's the the sort of golden um, you know the golden rule, and making sure that uh, uh, you know, you invest in relationships that that helping others uh, succeed will 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 end up. Uh, coming around in unexpected ways 
Um, it means dealing with, it means surrounding yourself with amazing people at all times and dealing with uh, situations where you're not surrounded by amazing people very quickly. And if I had to, if I had to pick basically every, every part of my career, if I had to pick a mistake to focus in on, it was almost always either a hiring mistake or a, um, uh, or a firing mistake of, of, of not getting, not getting, not dealing with the problem fast enough. Um, and yeah. so that's, that's probably where I would, I would focus. I hear you. I mean, without a doubt, relationships is, is one of the things that, that I come across quite a bit with the people that I speak with. So, so I, I agree that building those early on, you know, even without even knowing if they're going to lead to anything, you know, at least it's, it's all about relationships. So, so I'm, I'm fully right there with you. So, so for the people that are listening, what is the best way to, um, to reach out and say hi to you? Oh, you can just email me. I'm, I'm easy to find. I'm uh, Shashir at Coda.io, or if you're a bit of more of a personal request, I'm at Shashir at alum.mit.edu. Amazing. Well, Shashir, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. Okay. Thank you very much. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening, and see you at the next episode.